this is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer and I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organisation before we get started. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS. And our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to 2019 Disability Done Different, our second series of podcast we're really excited to be back because we're not sure we were going to make it past the first set and we did yeah. we're really pleased with the response to those those first six and encourage you to go back because they're timeless you're legends oh stop yeah. it who's that yeah. <laughs> so my my sidekick this year is evie again with maya as our producer hey. and, Hello. <laughs> and we're off to a fly in january 2019 and today the call is coming from inside the house And it's Sally Coddington, one of our consultants who uh, more than earns her space on a podcast because she's not only a parent, she's a marketing guru. She got her MBA from Harvard, graduated from Harvard, 20 years experience in the financial services industry and was a CEO of his disability support provider. So Sally wears many hats but doesn't always wear them comfortably as we'll find out today. Well, very comfortably, but just all at once. They all look good. Which gets a bit confusing. Um, so Sally's been talking a bit about the workshops she runs and it's, it's very interesting to sit in in one of Sal's workshops because sometimes she's talking as a parent of a child with disability, sometimes she's talking as a, an expert marketer, sometimes she's talking as an ex-CEO in the disability sector and I, that's partly in, you know, looking at what you do but do you find it difficult sometimes um, flipping from those roles and remembering who you are or is it important or it's just one big blur for you? It's a little bit of all of those things, but um, now part of my introduction is just warning everybody that that's what's going to happen um, and letting them know that I'm, I'm never really sure who I'm channeling <laughs> at any point in time. Um, and, and then I just leave it at that. And yeah. then sometimes I'll say, oh, right now I just have my mum hat on or right now I have my CEO hat on. Um, but other times I'm, it's just who knows. Who knows who I am? Um, one of those characters, <laughs> one of those personas. Do you mind telling us a bit about your family? All right, so um, there are currently four of us. There were five of us, including Nikki. Um, so it's Mike and me, mum and dad. Mike is American. Um, and we uh, have three daughters, uh, Ellie, who's 16, Nikki, who uh, died last September, and she was 13, and Lil, who was nine. Um, and dog, the dog, of course, Baggers, the dog. <laughs> um, and we live in Newcastle in New South Wales. Okay, so we're talking about luck and agency and privilege and, and all kinds of things. Um, Sally, would you say you're a lucky person? Because I think a number of people would say you've been a bit unlucky in your life. Oh, no, I'm exceptionally lucky. Yep. Yes, definitely exceptionally lucky. Some people would look at me and say that I have been unlucky. Yeah, I guess some people would. Um, But I, um, so as being a a good Catholic girl with 12 years, actually a bad Catholic girl, but Catholic (laughs) all the same. So um, 12 years of Catholic school, 
And I think that the one thing that I have taken away from that um, is the serenity prayer, which is the um, <laughs> understanding um, the things you can control, understanding the things that you can't control, and then understanding the difference. Or accepting the things you can't control, um, change the things you can control, and the prayer is to understand the difference. And for me, that has been um, really, really pivotal in uh, uh, enduring the bad luck that we have had um, because I just didn't sweat the stuff I couldn't control. So were you lucky to have a kid with a disability? Um, uh, uh, now I see myself as being very lucky to have had Nikki in my life, but it didn't start that way. I felt very unlucky. So it was a journey. Yeah. From your own a emotions journey about from it. feeling really freaking ripped off to feeling um, extraordinarily blessed. Last night over dinner, one of the people we were with, Sal, she was talking about one of the older guys in her family, sort of a, you can imagine, one of the, the uncles or grandfathers type person, and a younger female in the group uh, in the family acquired a brain injury. And she talked about it taught him how to love differently. And you understand that, don't you, Sal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the... Um, it definitely teaches, well, motherhood teaches you how to love differently. Uh -huh. um, and then uh, I guess the, you know, we all go into motherhood if we have the fortune of, of motherhood. We all go into that with some sort of vision and expectation and dream about what that will look like. Um, and uh, when you have a child with a disability, you have to reassess that dream in many cases. Um, and for me, actually, even that was a blessing because I felt completely let off the hook. All of a sudden, things didn't have to be perfect. Things could just be the way that they were. And um, Roland, you and I are both interested in the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Are we allowed to say f in? <laughs> and and what, they, what he says in The Subtle Art of Giving a Fuck, um, when you... Uh, give less of a fuck actually good things happen um, and and I and I I definitely attribute the joy and success that I've had in my life to the fact that I was able to let go of that ridiculous vision for a life of success which actually quite frankly was going to be me at the age of 55 still in financial services after you know 35 years and miserable so i with really, serious really alcohol problem. <laughs> with a very serious alcohol problem. I may still now. have alcohol <laughs> problem. <laughs> oh, gosh, I hope you can make something of that. <laughs> so we probably talk, we, mm. we always talk with you about love for one reason or another. And mm. a hilarious thing, Evie, I'm going to go somewhere else for a moment. About two months ago, Evie was finishing up a workshop with Sally, and the next day she was remarking to me that when she said goodbye to Sally, she whispered in her ear, I love you. I didn't say I whispered she it in whispered. her ear. <laughs> she did. <laughs> and it was moist. Let the record show, I definitely <laughs> did not whisper in Sally's ear, I love you. But my you. ear was still moist. <laughs> But you were inquiring the next day, was that inappropriate? <laughs> but since then, I've been saying to Sal when I say goodbye, yeah. I love you. Why do we tell Sal we love her, Evie? Because we do. She's exceedingly lovable. Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know. Sorry? Did you tell him I, I said I whispered in your ear? No. <laughs> I think you looked me in I the just eyes. Embellished a little. I think, just I think frankly, on? you were looking me in the eyes when you told me that you loved me. Okay. <laughs> um, and now it's become de rigueur. Right? <laughs> because it's now the way we do things around here. We do. Yeah. I... What have I put on the spot now? So Do you love the me? weirdest. Exp- oh, you know I love you. I told you the other day I loved you. It's what always you? well. Oh. I think it, I think maybe I was having a similar experience to, um, you know, we sometimes joke about the the time that somebody had come along to a workshop, came and kissed you on the cheek yeah, later yeah, yeah, on, yeah, and yeah. you were like, "Who are you?" And I'm like, "What is going on here? Do I even know this person?" <laughs> because you totally forget about how much you're personally sharing in those two days. There's so much of it. I know. And it's like therapy. Well, it's it something is. you do at the start of a session, or not even the start of a session, yeah. but during a session, which is really disarming. Yeah. And you create a really trusting, warm, non politically correct environment really quickly. Mm. Do either of you know what the trick for that is? Well, I can tell you that it's just intensified since Nikki died. Uh-huh. Because now I'm talking about fact that Nikki's gone mm. and I include photos of Nikki in my workshop yeah you know wow and they're they're awesome photos they're and beautiful. and we all have an opportunity to have a bit of a laugh at about how beautiful and gorgeous she was yeah so it's not about your vulnerability it's just not as simple as that it's not mm, I don't know what it is either I think it's opening a door to something this workshop in question as well, where I told you I loved you, was the first one that we'd run together since Nikki died. It was about six weeks later. Mm. And we did it. And yeah, we did. But yeah. she felt she felt very present during the workshop. I think that's what I was responding to. Mm. I think I made you comfort me quite a bit over the two days. Yeah, but that's what happens when someone dies, is that you end up comforting a lot of other people. Yeah. Doesn't that shoot you sometimes when people are um, expecting more of you? Into so yeah. I've seen it a number of times where people's grief is just so overwhelming that the person who's in your situation is spending time mm. comforting them. Has that been an issue? Um, no, not really. Uh, it, it just feels like the way it is. Again, I just I haven't really agonised over it. But I do, I do know that there are people I still need to tell mm. and I have avoided it because I'm a little bit exhausted by having the conversation. Yeah. Um, but, but going back to love and Nikki, um, I, you know, apology to my other beautiful two daughters and Mike, but I think Nikki is the person I most loved. Love, still. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's because of everything that she gave me. The way that she she let me off the hook about having to live the perfect life. The way that she gave me um, love. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> so Nikki was a non-verbal communicator, yeah? Mm. <laughs> As I am right now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I think yes. this is going to get even more difficult. Do you not no, no, it? no, it's okay. It's a, We have to, hey, people listening, we just have to ride through the tears. Yeah. There will be an end to them. I promise you it won't be sad the whole way through. So I'm not <laughs> quite sure, but I'm going to ask this anyway. So Nikki's a nonverbal communicator yes. and you had a very intense relationship with Nikki, which means you had some sort of symbiosis or mm. some sort of nonverbal means of 
engaging with Nikki, mm. which means you're engaging in ways that a lot of us can't even understand. Mm. So some people talk about um, people who use sign language as being an even richer language than verbal language mm. because sign language offers them opportunities to communicate that we can't communicate mm. with words. But you've gone to a whole different level mm. with Nikki with is mm. this impossible to talk about? Or can no, you no, no. And I, and I can't even define it for you. And um, I, it, it actually wasn't something... So it was an intuitive... It was communicating at an, an intuitive level. And actually, um, I, I'm woo-woo enough to be happy and comfortable talking about it. But I used to, uh, as you will know about me, I was very, very conscious about how we curated Nikki's support team. And I would observe that same intuitive communication between Nikki and, and the support workers that we chose to be in our lives. And they probably wouldn't have articulated it that way, but that's how I knew they were the right people for Nikki and for us. Um, and I was telling the story last night at dinner. I think it was last night at dinner. It might've been the night before. Um, and I would be able to overhear what was going on between Nikki and her support worker in the next room. And I would know from what I could hear that there was a connection happening. Now, keeping in mind that Nikki really was a nonverbal communicator and really didn't even use uh, noise a lot in the way that she communicated. So there wasn't a lot of noise coming from Nikki. It was about um, the way that the support, I could, it'd be something like along the lines of I'd hear this, and then there'd be silence and then the support worker would respond oh, and then there'd be silence and and really there was a conversation that was going on and it's it's likely that the support worker wasn't even aware that they were participating in a really rich conversation but Nikki's contribution was entirely non-verbal and it was actually at an, an intuitive level. So I, I was conscious about my communicating with Nikki like that, but um, it was about Nikki. It was, Nikki was the, the, the one that was able to reach out and, and be loved and communicate and make connections. So it wasn't just between Nikki and me. I've loved to hear some of the stories you've told recently about um, in the time since Nikki died, Yeah, the people who've come to you and talked to you about the connection that they had with Nikki outside of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, Nikki had a profound impact on lots of people's lives. And I, I did get lots and lots of, uh, we got as a family lots of messages and cards um, thanking Nikki, um, really thanking Nikki, I guess. Um, and and uh, obvious ones are uh, from her school, you know, where she was well loved. The ones that surprised me were the ones that came from specialists at the hospital and ICU, um, doctors and nurses who um, actually were really grateful um, for having had Nikki in their lives. But I, I think also really grateful for having us as a family in their lives um, because I think that uh, people do need to be reminded um, or people need to see examples of families and people with disability living really rich lives full of love and I think that I hope that that's what 
what we portrayed. I hope that that's the message. Because um, I've always said that my approach to um, advocacy was to live an awesome life and to be an example that loving someone with a disability um, doesn't mean that you can't have an awesome, successful life. You know, we, we talk a lot about uh, um, about people with disability living really, really hard lives and families of people with disability really living really, really hard lives. And that's true. I mean, the majority, many do. Um, but it's not inevitable. You know, having a child with a disability doesn't stop you from um, attaining a really awesome, amazing life. And I wish someone had shown me that um, when Nikki was born because when I was referring before to the journey that we went on where at first I felt really ripped off and I came to a place of feeling extremely blessed um, what I really needed at that very first moment was role models that would say to me you know what yes this sucks but it's not the end of the world you'll get used to it you'll adjust and you'll still have an awesome life and so will Nikki because then I wouldn't have wasted all those years um, feeling miserable for myself. Yeah. But maybe I needed to waste a few years to, to take that journey. Who knows? Before I worked in the disability sector, I think the experience that I'd had of disability, and particularly of parents with a disability, parents of kids with a disability, was um, seeing the challenge and the struggle. And I probably would have said that the worst thing that could have happened to me would have been to have a child with a disability. Mm. And it's only been in the last few months probably especially since Nikki died that I've been thinking about. I love you, Evie Norfolk. <laughs> I love you too, Sarah. That I've been thinking about, you know, it's not a cliche to say that the best things in life come from the hardest parts mm. and that, you know, when you and I have been talking about some of the most beautiful parts of you and of your family and the things, the, the journey that your life has now gone on, mm. it's been as a result of Nikki. Mm. I just think that, yeah. <laughs> So, no. so we've been talking, I'm taking this somewhere, so we've been talking for three decades about socially valued roles for people with yeah. disabilities. Mm. And for me it seems everybody's really wrapped up that a socially valued role should look like getting a job. Mm. But what you're saying is Nikki had an intensely socially valued role with everybody from the specialists mm. right through to your family all the way um, in between. Why don't people recognise the socially valued role that people with disabilities bring to our lives? So I, when I worked um, a long time ago and we ran a kindergarten and there were eight kids with disabilities and 12 kids without, by the time those 12 kids without disabilities had um, been in a very rough suburb, went to school, the teachers always remarked these kids are much less prone to bullying, much less prone to be bullies, much more able to look after themselves. They were much better human beings in themselves because they'd spent two years with kids with disabilities. Mm. It's not about getting a job. No. And and it also, um, I, I mean, I can only speak about Nikki specifically, but she is irreplaceable. How many of us can say that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're all replaceable. I mean, Mike could go off and marry any gorgeous young yeah, chick right. at any point in time, This right? coming from the woman <laughs> yesterday who was mortally offended that somebody referred to her as being an ordinary no, no, person. No, no, wait a minute. I don't think she was talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> replaceable, maybe. Ordinary, never. No. Absolutely. We often talk about what we learn from you, Sally, and we're constantly learning from you, which is interesting after all these years that we can learn so much so quickly. But I had a big realisation a couple of years ago in a workshop. We kept talking about teams, and at that stage we were on a big kick with autonomous teams and teams this and teams that. And you were actually in the audience, speaking a lot from the audience as you do, and said, made it very clear that you're talking, Roland, about the organisation, about the team belonging to the organisation. The team belongs to me, to my family, and to Nikki. And you, you're starting to use the word curate, which seems to be a really... Um, that has some complexity, that word to it. You cura curate a team mm. for Nikki. So can you tell me why the team is yours and why mm. organisations should view the team as yours, not as theirs? Um, well, uh, the, the centre of the team is uh, Nikki and us as a family. So it clearly I just visually see it as our team. Um, and, uh, and I do very, very consciously curate, I did very, very consciously curate Nikki's team. Um, Why curate? Why that word? Um, be, well, that word because I want to be really clear about the level of intention that, uh, that I put into deciding who was in the team. Um, and also uh, the fact that I, I don't have a cookie cutter idea of what the perfect support worker looks like. Um, I, I want different support workers that bring different things to Nikki's life. Um, and uh, as a general rule, there are things that I won't tolerate in support workers unless there's something ex extre extremely or exceptionally special that a support worker brings. So we... Um, so you really are curating, you're putting together a set of very different qualities. Very know. different qualities. So I would have uh, Wendy, who was is a retired um, nurse, and um, Wendy was um, probably uh, the, the most reliable member of Nikki's team. She would be someone that I would leave Nikki with overnight um, and she'd be someone who I wouldn't be nervous if Nikki got sick um, leaving um, uh, Nikki with Wendy and um, Wendy is very active in her church and so Wendy used to take Nikki to church um, and that's something that I would never have done so I was quite excited that that gave Nikki an opportunity to be part of a community um, independently from me and us as a family, but part of a community that she would never have been part of um, if, if it had been up to me. So that's um, Wendy. And then Kim. Um, Kim is Korean and oh, Kim is just amazing. So um, Kim's English isn't fantastic, although it is like infinitely better than my Korean. And <laughs> um, Kim and Nikki's communication between each other was was the most beautiful thing you could ever experience. Um, and Kim used to um, put Nikki in bed and she literally looked like a piece of origami. It was so perfect. <laughs> Will you tell um, the story about the thousand favorite Koreans? So Kim, um, so one of the, the, uh, um, the stories, traditions, um, legends, is that uh, you fold a thousand paper cranes for someone and it brings them luck. 
So uh, over the time that Kim supported Nikki, she folded her a thousand paper cranes. And we still have that beautiful glass jar with the cranes sitting next to Nikki on her, in her spot. Nikki has a spot in our house. Um, it's actually in the hallway so that uh, whenever we come home, we all go, hi, Nikki. And when we go, we go, we're going, we'll be back in half an hour, Nikki. <laughs> Um, and her older sister Ellie brings flowers every day and puts a little fresh um, bunch of flowers um, with Nikki. So that was Kim. And then we had um, Byron Bay Abbey. And um, Byron cool. Bay Abbey was a little irresponsible. <laughs> um, but just the right amount of Byron Bay um, to make uh, Byron Bay Abbey usually spent time with Nikki during the school holidays. And I just loved that Byron Bay Abbey brought, um, and we literally called her Byron Bay Abbey, Byron Bay Abbey brought just that little bit of fun and youth to Nikki. Uh, and sometimes she was late. And you know what? I am very intoler intolerant. Intolerant? Is that the right word? Yeah. Um, of lateness. But um, I, you know what? That, that was just part and parcel of having Byron Bay Abbey on the team. So, so I want to work back to, oh, I, I, okay. I, just before we get through all the team <laughs> members, that's cool. <laughs> I want to work back to service reliability for a second, if that's okay. Yeah, so <laughs> that was Roland's equivalent of pushing my mute button. <laughs> yeah. I know where you're going. I don't need you. I can just yeah, answer okay. that question. <laughs> Go nuts. Roland was about to ask me about service reliability and uh, the fact that I would say, don't talk to me about goals and dreams and helping me reach my aspirations unless you get here when you say you're going to get here. Because the number one thing that keeps us up at night, and I'm talking about now I've got my mum hat on, just in case you didn't know, the number one thing that kept us up at night was what will happen when Nikki dies. And every time a support worker doesn't turn up when they say they're going to turn up, we spiral into existential crisis about what's going to happen to Nikki when we die. So uh, service reliability is without question the most important um, uh, KPI for an organisation from my perspective. Uh, and it's funny because we don't even talk about that anymore. But I remember one of the first things I did uh, when I was a CEO was that I had up on, I remember going to hospitals and sat and it would have up on the board, you know, 375 days since the last fall. And I had up on the board, you know, six days since the last service cancellation. Wow. Um, and, cool. and then we would all get really pissed off when somebody didn't turn up because it meant we had to go back to zero. To be honest with you, we never got a lot further than 10 days. And that's a real problem. Um, because if you can't turn up when you say you're going to turn up, um, then you can't even start talking about goals and dreams and aspirations. So I want to loop back to the conversation we were just having about the, the love that you um, experienced in the, the team that you created with Nikki, mm -hmm. because we know it's a big um, area of passion for you and one that you're exploring a little bit at the moment, maybe in a podcast of your own. Mm -hmm. wonder if you can tell our listeners anything about that. So... Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in the role that love plays in disability supports, um, recognising, of course, that uh, what love means um, can be really, really variable. Uh, an example of 
Wendy, one of our support workers, showing love was the way that Wendy would fold um, the sheets in the linen drawer or she would sort my Tupperware and I would come home from a weekend away and she would have been supporting Nikki over the weekend and I'd open that Tupperware drawer and the Tupperware would be like pristinely organized and I felt immensely loved mm -hmm. by Wendy when she did that. So I'm really interested in the role of um, love at the front line because for me, uh, it, without question, there was no question that Nikki's support workers would love her. Uh, and on reflection, I realized that that was partly because, uh, not just because I, I feel that Nikki really was deserving of love. It's Nikki's right to be loved by every single person who meets her. Frankly, I feel the same way about myself. <laughs> um, but also that, um, that it kept Nikki safe. That uh, that and I'm and I'm talking about I'm I'm not I'm talking about a selfless kind of love um, that that people would put Nikki's needs and Nikki's preferences and um, Nikki's joy and happiness and comfort first if they loved her and I didn't have to worry about Nikki if she was being supported by someone who loves her. So the podcast idea is. So the podcast is an exploration of love at the front line with um, with Vanessa Toy my fabulous partner in crime when it comes to she's, she's actually to be honest she's the brains behind it and I'm just the mouth at the front of it because my superpower is talking and her superpower is just getting to understand things bring us together we have a podcast I know when we were originally talking about the podcast concept, we we're having this very difficult conversation about, yeah, but what is love? And, you know, how are we going to define it? In the end, we sort of decided maybe the whole idea should be about exploring it because it started with quite a, um, a challenging example of somebody else that we'd heard of who, for them, that they found your idea or your concept of love at the front line, like, frankly, probably quite repulsive. For them, love at the front line was something that was very... Um, professional that didn't ask any kind of personal engagement that somebody got in and got out and that's how you could show that person you know the sort of respect that they wanted mm. yeah so so uh, so the objective is to talk with a really wide variety of people in exploring what the love what love at the front line means and looks like uh, and I want to talk with people from other human services uh, because I think it's it's equally as relevant in um, aged care and childcare. I want to talk with participants about what love at the front line looks like to them. I want to talk with um, support workers about um, why love at the front line is important to them and what it looks like to them. Um, because I think it's really important. I think it's I think it's what we're missing is a discussion around the role of love at the front line. And it's not a, the role of support workers loving participants any more than it's um, about the role of participants in loving support workers as well. Just human connection at the front line and the role that it plays. That's great. You've talked about y you love the job you're currently doing. Mm. and well no I love the people I work with and the job that I'm currently doing so cool. keep going <laughs> but you had a lot of agency in that so do you want to talk yeah. about how you engineered getting the job you're yeah. currently in oh okay so people are going to think I'm a bit woo woo um, 
and I probably am a little bit woo-woo. <laughs> um, so a disclaimer for those of you who don't like woo-woo people, um, I really, really strongly believe in visualization as uh, a way of um, shaping my life. Um, and so what I did about three and a half years ago, maybe four years ago, is I um, actually created a little digital photo board of all the things that my ideal job would bring for me. Um, and so that it in included a picture of me dressed in my professional gear. I wanted an opportunity for a professional um, persona. I wanted an opportunity to be part of a team of people that um, are um, thinking new ideas and creating new ways of perceiving the world. So I had a picture that represented that. I wanted a job that where I got to stand in front of groups of people and talk about myself. <laughs> Which, hello, success, <laughs> tick. I get to do that. Um, I wanted a job where I got lots and lots of travel. Uh, and I wanted a job where not only did I have a professional persona, but I could also be my own free spirit. Uh, and I about, it was a, I reckon it was less than two weeks after I created that vision board that I looked at every single day. I remember seeing an article that Roland wrote. And in reading it, I went, wow, this is someone I want to work with. And so I sent a Roland an email saying, um, I'd love to work with you sometime. And that afternoon I started working with um, DSE. But, but for me, the vision board was really, really important because it helped me to clarify what I was looking for. And so I probably read 10 articles that day, but there was only one that really stood out to me as a pathway to where, towards where I was going. So did that answer that question? Yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. That was great. Convoluted. Well, Not yeah. so woo-woo after all. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about marketing, Sally. And you and I have been talking about marketing now for I think about four years in the sector and still yeah. feeling like we're not quite getting where we want to get. So uh, most people in the sector think a really good marketing strategy is stuff that's about branding at a simple level, branding with the website, the name, a new logo, some so, you know groovy social media stuff, and we've pretty much done our marketing strategy. And I know you don't see it that way, so can mm. you talk to us about the way you see it? So um, the, the catchphrase is marketing is everything. <laughs> everything is marketing. <laughs> everything is marketing, marketing is everything. Um, I think, uh, you know, when we talk about the big changes that come from the NDIS, the number one change I always talk about is individualised plans and payments. And really that equals NDIS participants are customers of disability supports and uh, the C word. <laughs> and I think um, it's really, really important to understand the implications of that. You know, you were talking, Roland, about um, social role valorization and you know being a customer with a capital C is a really really valued role so I'm really keen on seeing organizations take that seriously um, and understand what it means that their participants their clients are actually customers so it, it, it if marketing is everything it means that it's not just websites and it's not just Facebook postings and all of those kinds of things. It's things like uh, how you design your services, how you measure quality, uh, all kinds of things. It, you know, 
and it's really really frustrating I feel like we're at a point now where um, where our little marketing gurus in DSC are hiding inside the Trojan horse as we come into your organization hoping that we can show you how important it is to understand the implications of individualized plans and payments and participants being customers to your business. That's so interesting. I want to come back and talk about customers with Evie in a moment in an article she wrote a few years ago now about um, the C word. But before that, Vanessa Toy um, comes from a leadership background, our co-director, my co-director, very, very focused on organizational culture. And then you come from a marketing background, you come from other backgrounds, but marketing as well. And you talk about brand. Mm. And just to watch the two of you get together and to see mm. the humongous overlap between brand and culture. I think they're the same thing. Mm. But most people don't see it that way, no. do they? No. no. Take us t tell us why brand is culture. Um, well, the, so the, the thing I dislike the most is when I see organisations doing a little logo refresh and calling it rebranding. Um, because you, you don't create a brand. Um, what you do, and especially in human services, is you reveal a brand. Uh, so branding should be about understanding who you are as an organization and who you are as an organization. What you reveal when you go looking for your brand is your culture. So there's a huge pushback in our sector to anything that looks like consumerism, anything that looks like advertising, and anything by way of that which looks like marketing. And so there's a huge amount, and it'd be very, very strong in the consumer advocacy groups, in the advocacy groups themselves, we don't do marketing. Mm. Can you tell them why they've got it wrong, Sal? Well, firstly, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is this related to um, the fear of ambition in human services? Wow. Um, because uh, is, is there something evil about being ambitious to have more customers who love you, to do a better job in um, supporting your customers to live ordinary lives. Um, and I suspect it does. We need to get more ambitious in human services, perhaps. I, I, I think it's, I think that's even taking it a level above the, we just hate everything advertising, we hate consumerism, and then we hate marketing. I think a lot of it comes back to some pretty simplistic notions that marketing is about selling shit to people who don't oh, really yeah. need it or want Gildering, it. gilding the turd, yeah. um, which is not, of course. But I, but I wonder if we hate advertising because we hate the ambition to bring more customers to us. But ultimately, is it fair to say that your vision of marketing matches up with a very deeply one person at a time, person-centered approach? In mm. fact, you're the person that talks about a segment of one. Um, and my response to that would be, um, if that's what customers want, then yes. But I would go back to the customer every time to ask them what they want. If they want a one person at a time approach, I personally do. That's why I'm a fan of it. You know, my target market of one wants that approach. A few years ago, um, Evie hadn't written a lot of articles for DSC, hadn't yeah. done a lot of stuff, and um, one of her um, ambitions for that year was to start to write um, articles and to have them become more popular. So one of her first forays into it was... Um, was an article called uh, When It's Okay to Use the C Word, and the C Word being customer, and my answer was always, because it's great and it's an empowered, valued role. 
Um, and what, three people read it? And, and, no. and not everybody agreed. <laughs> oh, yay, tell us what they said. Well, when your 23-year-old comes home in tears from work. Oh, <laughs> people disagree. Oh, what did they say? I think I think you know what they said. Well, let's hear it. I've actually, it's not, the conversation's not gone. I'm having the conversation again this week with another group. For a lot of people, the word customer means, um, it's another way of othering, really. Even some of the organisations we work with don't like us to say participant. Do you know what I mean by othering? The, the insiders, outsider stuff, it, it's, it's you're not part of this, this group. This, and in particular with people with disabilities, it's mm. you're not part of normal. Yeah. yeah. So um, when it comes to the use of the word participant, I agree. I've actually started to realise that we are misappropriating the use of the word participant to use it as another word for people in Australia with profound disability. Um, and so I prefer the word people, which um, Leighton J introduced me to. Um, it <laughs> doesn't always people. work. What? The word people. The, well, <laughs> <laughs> the use. That's pretty. <laughs> Thank you, Leighton, for that profound insight. And, and do you know what we mean when we say people? <laughs> <laughs> but when it, com- <laughs> when it comes to the word customer, there's huge power. We talk about customer power. That is a, that's a phrase. Um, and so I think that there's nothing but power in being a customer. What's the downside of customer, Amy? I think it's just another thing that, that delineates like the roles, that this is what this is the role I play and that's the role you play because we're not the same. Yeah, but you know what? Customers have power over the people that sell them products and services. So is that a bad thing? That's what I think. That's why we spell participant with a capital P to highlight the role and the power that that has. But, you know, this is going to be an ongoing debate in our sector forever. Well, we'll never find words. You can never keep up if the language changes so quickly. So speaking of um, long, difficult terms, values-based service differentiation. Yes. Discuss. Please. So, um, so let's first just do a little 101 about service differentiation. <laughs> There's a variety of ways as a provider that you can differentiate yourself from other providers, show that you are special or different. Um, and uh, some of those ways include things like being really, really awesome at supporting children or being really, really awesome at supporting people who are preparing to leave school, or being really, really awesome at supporting people with acquired brain injury. Um, but I also believe that there is an untapped opportunity to actually focus on supporting people who have particular uh, value orientations. So uh, it was really highlighted to me, I was walking through Glebe once, Glebe in Sydney, and I hadn't realized until I stayed there how greeny Glebe is, but it's really, really super greeny. Like all the shops are vegetarian and there's like everyone kind of advertises their greeniness. And lo and behold, on the corner of the street, there was a dentist called the Eco Dentist. And I was like, this is exactly what I have been talking about when I talk about values based differentiation. Because there's a real opportunity to uh, hone your service. Um, to meet the needs of people who have particular uh, values that they live by. And I have often for, you know, talked about, I would love there to be a green um, service provider, someone who every aspect of the way that they deliver disability supports 
takes an eco approach. And that might be something like, you know, their corporate vehicles are Priuses. Uh, they support participants who want to use reusable continence aids, that any of the cleaning stuff that they use is bio, all those kinds of things. And uh, I think that, that that's a really interesting and exciting way of differentiating yourself as an organisation that hasn't really been done outside of religion. I think I've just figured out why. Just as you were saying, because I've been having an interesting conversation recently. We're creating a lot of online training stuff at the moment for frontline workers. And there's always somebody who wants to add in something about um, human rights and how important human rights are. Mm. And I keep coming back to the fact that you can't tell people that they need to respect people's human rights because nobody believes that they don't respect people's human rights. So to start the conversation there doesn't quite work. You need to show them how it works. And just as you were talking, I was thinking along those lines, maybe the problem in our sector is that the stakes are already so high that most providers are talking about how they help people to live their dreams and, you know, break down barriers Mm. and live a life of independence that something like sustainability, which probably most people would agree is an optional value. It's not a value that everybody shares. There's not that many spaces left because it'd be a de-escalation in value compared to what everybody else is saying. Do you think so? Maybe. I think it's a higher order value. So I think that um, for me, if I'm if I'm visualizing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, being able to choose a provider on the basis of value like eco friendly is operating at a higher order need. It's a a place of privilege um, than those providers that really are focused on the lower order safety. We'll feed you. We'll be there when we say we'll be there. Well, they're not even you know. doing that. Yeah, so. but that'd no, be the most no, compelling no. of all, really. Yeah. Well, isn't that a sad indictment on yeah, the industry? We're just not there yet. Sal, you do a, a huge amount of support coordination workshops, and they're proving to be more and more popular. We're, we're unable to keep up with the amount we want to get you out there doing support coordination. I know you're pretty much only doing stuff that you're passionate about these days. You're, you're pretty picky about the work you'll do with us or for us. Why is support coordination pushing the buttons? Why are you putting so much effort in that space? Um, I I honestly believe that support coordination is the single most important role in the NDIS. I know that we were extremely successful in uh, using Nikki's plan to support her to live an ordinary life and us as a family to live an ordinary life. And I attribute that to our confidence in um, using Nikki's plan really, really super flexibly uh, and connecting to providers that uh, we loved working with. And so I think that support coordination plays that role for participants and families who aren't quite there yet to do it for themselves. So that's the role that I see support coordination playing, is is the role in supporting people to be as NDIS confident as we were with Nikki. So I want to wrap up, and if people have listened this this far, Sally, they'll know a lot more about you if they haven't known a lot more about you already. But you're clearly an early adopter. You've been an early adopter as a parent of a child with a disability. And an early adopter, generally in, in marketing or whatever terms they're used in, are the people that will show you what the future will look like because this is where other people will come. So as an early adopter, can you give us your reflections on where you think the NDIS will go over the longer term? Um, I can tell you where I hope it goes and 
where I hope it goes is that by combining both the ILC, Information Linkages and Capacity Building, grants and individualised plans, that we can actually move towards a place where people need fewer paid supports in their lives, that people can live ordinary lives with fewer paid supports. And what I love about that vision is that it's entirely the purpose of the NDIS. So I, it you is. know, it's, it's, it's entirely the purpose. Uh, I think one of the, we're, we're at a place right now where many participants and families are still really anxious about not having enough paid supports in their lives. And I think that's because as community and society, we're very not inclusive, unsupportive, inaccessible um, to people with disability. So, so we really need paid supports, um, but I would really love it if, if, if we just didn't. So as an ex-CEO and provider, this is the last one. Yeah. And we work solely with providers. How do providers get ready for the new world? Um, I think that providers need to focus on making themselves obsolete in the lives of the people they support, um, understanding that there'll always be a steady stream of people being born with disability. It's one of the miracles of modern technology in some ways. Um, but uh, to support people to not need you um, and trust that there'll be a new bunch of people who'll need you to do that for them too. Thank you, Sally. There's only one way we can end um, this podcast. We love you. We love you. <laughs> You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. You can subscribe to our podcast by following the link in the show notes or on our website, disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au. And the podcast has got legs, but they're only baby steps at this stage. We're only getting enough listeners to keep us fired up in the hundreds. We want to see lots more people coming. So give us a five-star rating so some other people will tune in and listen to some of our fabulous guests. Please feed Roland's desperately hungry ego and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you've got any negative feedback, please keep it to yourself. (laughs) 